Welcome to the Debate 101 series of This House Would. Today, Noah and I will be continuing our conversation with Ethan Fortes on increasing accessibility in debate. So just a quick recap on what we talked about in our previous episode. We discussed the benefits of intramural style debates, as well as ways we can leverage judges and chaperones in order to benefit and improve our debate system as well. So today we would love to continue this conversation with Ethan. So what about now during COVID? Like, is there any like tangible things that we can do to help improve accessibility right now? The pandemic has brought, you know, untold horrors to the world. And we shouldn't mitigate that. But there are, without a doubt, advantages to having moved our lives online. We are for the first time taking advantage of like, the level of information technology and communication tools that we have available to us that we didn't have 10, 20 years ago. So we have, the potentials that we have are huge. And I think that I'm not here to give everybody instructions on how to fix debate. That's ridiculous. I don't know that every time I talk to somebody about this, um, I find out something new about some person or group is doing uh, something different um, using online, whatever. And I encourage and applaud everybody who is using, you know, the current opportunities that we have to make debate more accessible. I do think there are a few things, though, that we should keep in mind when we're when we're making decisions about how to move forward in our debate community. The first thing, so I think that people should start organizing their own regular practice meetings that are intramural in their nature in the sense that you invite your friends, you invite people from other schools, other clubs, and having people from different debate groups debating against each other in and of itself is so important. We cannot just have a small group of people learning arguments from one coach for years and then that those are all the arguments that they're good at making. We want to have people exposed to all different kinds of ideas. Because guess what? How else are you going to get better at refuting points if you don't hear points you've never heard before? So I think we should be creating debate spaces as much as possible. And I have like a couple ideas for how uh, guidelines for doing this. One of them is that I think we should be using existing structures as much as possible. It's always going to be harder to try and start something new where you don't have, you know, a base group of people who are already showing up and already participating. That's the first. So using existing structures like I know that a lot of groups are already making their own little debate discords. And I think it's fantastic. I used a discord for a DTL to communicate with my students and to share posts and have some discussions. And honestly, it's very productive. Um, And if you are part of a debate discord, you should consider that you have, you know, you're part of something that has the potential to really improve a lot of people's debate experiences, and you may not even realize it. The second thing that I would say is that it's important to use your networks. Use the networks of debaters and coaches that you're already familiar with. Talk to your friends, get your friends involved. Like, If you are a debater and you participate in like a once a week kind of open debate uh, practice, you kind of have an obligation to like invite your friends and try and, you know, make it a bit more fun, a bit more inclusive and like increase the energy a little bit. So another thing that we can do is 
Learn from the history of debate communities across the country. You know, university debaters have a long and esteemed tradition of like self-running meetings and how to, to organize rounds in accessible, fair ways based on the needs of people who showed up that day. There doesn't need to be a list of rules. There doesn't need to be a whole, you know, system in place that, you know, confederated debate communes across the country. That's like obviously not something that needs to be done. What does need to be done, though, is that we can take advantage of the knowledge that, you know, older coaches and university debaters have about how to run meetings well and bring that to high schoolers and show them that you can actually self-run meetings. You don't need to have one person who's just going to call all the shots and they're the ones who are responsible for the for the meeting. Because then what if, you know, you have a once a week debate practice that like a few coaches and a bunch of students show up to and maybe a coach doesn't show up one time and then another coach or a debater can judge like these are the kinds of flexible non-rigid uh uh setups that that really do work and if you look at a lot of the best debaters in the world they come from environments that were loose and unstructured and you know non-hierarchical and i think that that's something that we should uh take quite seriously one thing I would caution against is it can be very tempting during the pandemic to debate and form debate communities with people from all across the country and all across the world. And I think that there is a lot of benefit to that. You know, having intramural debate online really does have all those benefits I talked about before. But after the pandemic, it's going to be important that these communities can have some degree of in-person function, that we want to foster a community that can, you know, online debate's okay, but it doesn't compare to IRL debate. So I think keeping local and forming connections with people who, you know, maybe they'll be your friend one day, right? Like these are people who you can see regularly and see at local tournaments. I think it's important to not try to bite off more than you can chew. And you want to try and, you know, use local networks of debaters and debate coaches to form um, debate practices that are open to whoever wants to join. And this is something that all this is something that all university societies know or are kind of waking up to, at least in Canada, that you need to have a socially inclusive and fun environment um, in order for people to actually want to continue debating. Like there needs to be something other than competition that they can have. And the in-person environment is obviously way better for that for a lot of reasons. So um, that's a really interesting perspective that I hadn't thought of about casting your net too far, that you don't have the potential in the future to really have the the part of debate that keeps people involved. And especially if you think about people who are most often left out of debate, I mean, it's not that it's a contest, but especially women are excluded by very hyper-competitive environments because they're the most likely to be judged for being, quote, dumb or not knowing enough or, haha, woman doesn't know about economics to the economics major woman. And this toxic environment, it hurts these people the most. And without the social aspect to it, often you will see your society lose out on more women. And actually, um, I begrudge to say it, but even in Heart House, I've seen a lot of regression uh, as we've become more competitively successful and more competitively focused. Um, that's come at the cost of fewer female debaters or talented female debaters that stay in. And, you know, if you look at the most competitive debate circuits in the world, something like, you know, um, Australia, the level of hyper competitiveness that, uh, you know, you hear from debaters who 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 
have worked their way up there or even worked their way up and gotten nowhere, they'll describe, they'll tell you, like, Australia had to impose a quota to guarantee that women would get spots to go to Worlds. And this happened, like, you know, as the circuit was getting more competitive. And I really think that the competitive, the over-competitiveness that we see in debate almost gives rise to this hierarchical notion about who's good and who isn't. And we can't, you know, it's it's pretty clear that, like, the competitive aspects of debate definitely give an advantage to um, masculine speaking styles because they're just, you know, seen as and perceived as more competitive, even though, of course, they're not And I think that one way to address this is not just to be like, well, let's keep all the competitiveness and then put quotas to force people to not judge women negatively. And I don't think that's necessarily the only answer. I think that if you were to tame the competitive nature of, you know, the competitive culture in your community can actually uh, create a debate space that's accessible to everybody. And I wanted to say one last thing, not one last thing, but I just wanted to also add that Debate is valuable even for people who are not competitive. If you debate in practice rounds, get a couple firsts here and there, you know, you learn a lot and you gain skills that you can bring with you to every part of your life, even if you've never broken at a tournament. So we really do need to do away with the idea that debate is valuable because one day you'll win a prize if you make it to semis, you know, at HHIV. Like, that is something that I think we do need. This is what I'm talking about in terms of toning down the competitive, uh, the competitive energy in our debating looking at the time we're close to an hour so do you guys have any last thoughts or last comments that you guys want to give before we wrap this conversation up today this is like the hook to get off the stage because we've been talking too long um i think that there's a few problems i think that exist right now that affect access so it is they're not really separate they're all linked but it revolves around financial accessibility it revolves around hyper competitiveness social hierarchy and clout and focusing on people who are already experienced and a lot of these culminate in keeping people out of debate of discouraging them from continuing of making them not get as much out of the activity as they could and it takes debate out of what i think is really educationally, it's real value, which is giving you skills and critical thinking to engage in and outside of debate. And I think that there's a lot of solutions that we can take advantage of, but there's no one solution, right? So we can have better judge training, we can uh, encourage people or require people to be more involved in the club, we can try to set up volunteer coaching, but as long as there's this much money that kind of gates being able to access debate and become good at debate um, without, you know, absolutely grinding your way up to the top. That I think is something that has to be addressed. And the idea that people are worth more because of that, they're better as coaches. um, The idea that you can just pay and get bestowed upon you good arguments that other people can't. There's a lot of issues with that, both in terms of access and in the culture that it creates. So we need to we need to look for ways to not have as high expenses, but also not pass down those expenses to the high school circuit as the university circuit. And I think to wrap up and summarize these like pretty big ideas is that first of all, if you're listening and feeling like this could never be better, like, like there's no way to improve, 
you're wrong, I'm sorry, debate looked so different five years ago, and ten years even more, and that these are recent changes to the debate community. And it's hope is not lost. It's not like we've been doing this way, doing it this way for decades, and there's no institutional wisdom about how to do things in a more open and accessible way. There are ways to do this. So I, th- I encourage everybody to look for ways that debate has been historically more accessible, and then use those approaches, use those techniques, revive summer meetings, you know, create a, a open debate drop-in, uh, organize intramurals between your class and your friends' classes in order to really make these things happen. Like, nothing's going to change unless people start planning things, and it's not going to be planned from the top down. It's going to be pl- it's going to happen bottom-up. That is how all communities really run at the end of the day. And I think we really do need to do away with hierarchical thinking in debate. The notion that like an elite debater is something that e- someone that even exists. Like, no, they're just a human being with more debate experience than you might have. And they can offer you information about, you know, comp- competitions. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're inherently more valuable. I think that overall, we need to commit to being less competitive. Debaters need to commit to being less competitive in their outlook in debate and more participatory. When we have a debate community that that people participate in willingly, without resentment, without being like, I don't want to judge, then you can really create something that is not just like warm and a pleasant place to hang out, but something that can really last for generations. And we we want to make this impression on young debaters who are going to be the future coaches and the future judges and the future you know organizers of these kinds of things. So to coaches who are listening, I want to encourage you to talk to your friends about these ideas and see where you think you can, you know, what role you might play in making debate more accessible. And that might include finding or even creating, you know, uh, debate practices for students that are like, you know, I run an after eight debate for my students, um, for anyone who wants to drop in. It's not something you have to sign up for. It's just free. And they can invite any of their friends. And like that, the environment in those practices is completely different from my classroom environments. I can't even begin to tell you, like everyone is so much more relaxed. The pressure is off and the speeches are almost always better. I don't know why, but it's an indication that, you know, competition does not necessarily make debate better. And if you're a debater listening to this, I want to encourage you to try and find these opportunities yourself. Ask your friends if they know of any, you know, online debate practices or whatever, and then try and get involved. Part of debate communities is debaters themselves. People need to show up and there actually have to be people there to debate. When you only have five people showing up to a, to a meeting, it doesn't really have the same energy as, you know, 15, 20 people. And, you know, without, I don't, I don't want to encourage, you know, these things to get too big. That would be a really nice problem to have. But I think that these are the things that we should be focusing on. And the solutions are not going to come from decreasing price, you know, lowering prices for, you know, socioeconomically disadvantaged students. Like, that's not the answer, because the problem is systemic. The problem is not you know, a couple tweaks here and there. So I'm really excited to be a part of like a better future for Canadian debate. And I hope that everybody else is as well. Wow, I think that is a really, really good way to end. And honestly, like this whole conversation, there's just so many good back and forth ideas. And 
yeah, it was really enjoyable today. So thank you so much, Ethan. Um, and Noah as well, for sure. So thank you so much for joining the Debate 101 series. Stay tuned for more on This House Wood. So please follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and uh, Google Podcasts, and our Instagram at THW Debate Podcast. Thank you.